Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. Today, we have a really, really special uh, episode for you. We are podcasting live from the Texas EMS Conference in Fort Worth, Texas. So today with us, we've got Dr. Patrick, our Associate Medical Director. Good afternoon, Dr. Patrick. Hello, everybody. Andy Adams is always our technical guru on the boards. And a special guest today, uh, Brandon Means. Brandon is a longtime uh, friend and many-time listener of the podcast uh, who um, is a critical care nurse and flight paramedic for Flight for Life in Tyler. Uh, is also working uh, for a company called Pulsera, which is a uh, acute care coordination app company. So Brandon's here to join us in our discussion of mechanical ventilation uh, today. Good day, Brandon. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. So we thought with today's episode, we would uh, give you guys, listeners out there, a little preview. Uh, Clinical, Clinical Chief Jordan Anderson and myself are speaking tomorrow at the uh, conference on Ventilation 101, basically the uh, nuts and bolts of mechanical ventilation. And so Brandon was uh, gracious enough to join us and we're gonna kind of just walk through, again, some of the basics. Um, before, we get, before we get too far uh, off along in this discussion, just to be clear, we're not talking about uh, you know, transfer services, uh, vent weaning, um, ICU vent mechanics, uh, you know, specifics of of him services, other uh, you know, uber technical stuff. I'm not a intensivist or pulmonologist. Um, don't claim to be a vent expert, but there are some concepts we want to hit on that we think do apply directly to the paramedics on the street, even if you don't have uh, a vent. So before you tune this out many of these concepts apply to uh, just basic uh, pulmonary mechanics and ways we can help protect our patient's lungs when we're ventilating for them. So before we get to the ventilator, uh, BiPAP, CPAP, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation is a form of mechanical ventilation. So when we talk about vents, when we talk about vent mechanics, one of the places where I often get lost is acronyms. Yeah, Bi- me too. BiPAP, yeah. CPAP, SIMV. Uh, I think sometimes we, we we lose ourselves in in the acronyms and forget what we're you know what the what the foundations are basically what we're saying. So let's start with CPAP and BiPAP. What what are we talking about when we say CPAP and BiPAP? Yeah, CPAP. So CPAP is continuous positive airway pressure, and BiPAP is bi-level or sometimes called biphasic positive airway pressure. And, and so I I still like a, a story from, I think, Weigart's podcast where, I mean, essentially CPAP is just a constant circuit pressure um, in the circuit to recruit alveoli, right? So it's just like you're uh, driving down the road and you stick your, you know, the dogs in with you and he sticks his head out the window, right? That pressure of the air going into the pulmonary circuit is CPAP, right? It's a constant pressure. And with our, you can set that with our vent to where essentially it's just the peep on it, right? So those are analogous terms. So if you set a five sonometer of positive pressure on the circuit and use a a CPAP mask, that's essentially PEEP and CPAP are analogous terms. With BiPAP, you have that baseline, five or 10 centimeters of water, and then when when the patient 
triggers a negative inspiratory effort, they get a bump up or a pressure support of extra pressure. And this is usually helpful in our uh, type two respiratory failures, so our hypercarbic respiratory failure patients. That's given them almost the mechanics of a mechanical ventilation with a non-invasive mask. So I think very, very useful. Um, there are some patients we want to avoid it in. And you know, Brandon, can you talk a little bit about the patients you, you've seen it work in and not work in? Yeah, um, so I think they're, you know, CPAP and BiPAP, uh, any, t any type of non-invasive positive pressure ventilation uh, is becoming more prominent uh, in the pre-hospital world as it should be. Uh, and it's great because these are patients that for many years we would have intubated and, and they would have uh, ended up in the ICU on a vent for, for sometimes a prolonged amount of time. So uh, the basic concepts are, are the same, whether you're breathing through a piece of plastic or through a mask. Right, so so your parameters are the same. You're you're still focusing on uh, the ventilatory and the uh, you're you're still focusing on ventilation and oxygenation just the same. So you're still looking at your rate and your volume uh, for your ventilatory uh, for to, for your ventilatory parameters, and you're still looking at your PEEP and your FiO2 uh, for your oxygenation. So uh, whether you're intubated or not, I, I think we're able to turn a lot of these patients around, specifically your, your, C, your really sick CHF patients, um, you know, and not have to intubate. Right. So in all of our uh, critical care boards and things like that, a common question, and it comes up on the oral boards and the written, right, is, you know, how does non-invasive work? Dr. Patrick, you want to talk about that? Yeah, I mean, I think to go back to contraindications, uh, you know, patient has to be cooperative patient has to have intact mental status. The patient can't be vomiting. You can't uh, Velcro a mask to someone's face that's vomiting through it. Probably not going uh, not not to lend itself to... Yeah, they uh, don't, it doesn't stick very well either. Yeah, it's gonna, not going to lend itself to a good oxygenation <laughs> ventilation. Really, when I think about non-invasive, you can divide it into two, two main groups. You've got your obstructive lung disease and you've got your pulmonary edema patients. And for different reasons, one being improved ventilation, the other being improved oxygenation and uh, you know basically propping open or or uh, you know recruitment of the alveoli th those two groups are the groups that we have the most evidence that non-invasive positive pressure ventilation helps and both of those groups uh, your number needed to use non-invasive and prevent intubation both are less than 10. Uh, that's a great yeah, number. big 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 meta-analysis uh, Cochrane database uh, well vetted well sourced you, you know, strap a mask on someone 10 times or less, you're going to save a uh, plastic tube. That's, that's definitely a patient-centered outcome that we care about. And it, like Dr. Dixon said, we use, you know, our vent to uh, manage our positive pressure system at MCHD, but a lot of these uh, systems are now, you know, compact, um, the, again, not requiring a vent, but just compact portable CPAP, compact portable uh, BiPAP machines, just quick asterisk, BiPAP is uh, trademarked. So yeah, we that's use, right, we, we can't say that. We uh, use BiPAP in uh, common lingo, <laughs> but uh, if you want to be safe, you can talk about biphasic positive pressure ventilation. And again, that just makes it more comfortable, right? right. And, it, and it buys you some time. So, you know, a lot of these, these patients like talking about the CHFers, you know, uh, it's not gonna it's not gonna necessarily fix their problem, but it's gonna buy us a few minutes to uh, maybe onload, you know, offload that left ventricle, get some nitrates on board. Uh, and whereas uh, without 
positive pressure ventilation, they may not have those few minutes for, for those drugs to take effect, and, and you're going to end up in respiratory arrest anyway. And even if you fail, it may end up being a tool for preoxygenation, uh, nitrogen washout. Yeah. So. Absolutely. It's in our DSI guideline, right? The, the first opening gambit is either a non-rebreather at 15 or CPAP at you know, uh, 10 centimeters of water, 100% FIO, if they will tolerate it. So just touching there on, on non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, there, obviously that's a discussion we could have here for the next three days and, and uh, still not have scratched the surface. This is a Vent 101 lecture, so this is, this is entry level. So let's move on, talk a little more about uh, the actual ventilator itself. And I don't know about uh, listeners out there, myself, when I learned ventilator physiology and learned the basics of how to operate the vent, the part that scared me the most and really still does to this day, uh, complicated, never 100% clear, was the mode. What mode What mode do we need to pick? What mode is, uh, you know, how does this mode work? Is, is this mode right for this patient, that patient? We're going to touch on a couple here today, but before we even get into this, I want to propose to, to the listeners and, and to, my, to my colleagues here that I really feel like mode is the least important part of setting up the patient on the ventilator and probably plays, again, before I go too much further, in the, in the pre-hospital setting with reasonable transport times, the other settings, I, I feel, play much more of a vital role in preventing lung injury and enhancing oxygenation, enhancing recruitment than the mode does itself. Because yeah. a lot of times this mode is gonna be the same. Why? That's because the, the patient's paralyzed. Yeah, and it's two, it's two routes to the same endpoint, right? Um, you know, it's, uh, it's all about hitting those, those parameters that you're looking for. What, what are the ventilation parameters we're looking for? What are the oxygenation parameters we're looking for? And regardless of, of mode, uh, it's really all about that patient ventilator synchrony, right? So if you're if you've got patient and ventilator synchrony and uh, they're not setting off all kind of high pressure alarms, you're, you're right. It really doesn't matter which mode you, you go with. Yeah, Just, I think the mode, mode tends to confuse people more than anything is what case is getting to. So the ones we focus on here are right rate, tidal volume, right, which gives you if you if you uh, do the equation on that rate times tidal volume, right? That's your your minute ventilation. Uh, PEEP, which is positive end expiratory pressure, how much pressure we leave in that circuit at end expiration, and the fraction of inspired oxygen, which we always start 100% and wean back here. So let's, before we get to the other four ventilator keys, the rate, the tidal volume, the PEEP, and the FiO2, let's hit on, I think, what most people would say are the, the, the commonly used modes and those and those acronyms and I'll take it back to why I feel like it's not as complicated as, as we have to make it. Most of us learned controlled mode or controlled mandatory ventilation. Old school term, not even really accepted anymore, but that's the old school trigger for the ventilator was strictly time. The patient was not sensed or is not sensed and the limit is volume. Uh, we're not going to hit on pressure control ventilation here. We don't use that at MCHD. Uh, very commonly used now in the ICU. And to be honest, ventilators have progressed like our cell phones and modes now that combine pressure and, and volume limits. Can, but, can you just talk for a sec on, on 
explain exactly what you mean, Casey, by volume control and pressure control or volume cycle to pressure cycle? These are some of these terms that are thrown about out there. I think first two terms, if you want to take two terms out of this from a mode standpoint to put in your pocket, think about the trigger. The trigger is whatever triggers the breath. So again, in control mode ventilation, the trigger is simply time. If you set a rate of 20, you're going to get a breath every three seconds. 20 breaths per minute, a breath every three seconds. It doesn't matter if the patient is breathing 60 times a minute or 100% apnea. So the trigger would be time and control mandatory or control mode ventilation. The limit is the limit of the mechanical breath. And that limit can be, in a basic sense, can be volume or pressure. So in other words, it can be 600 milliliters or it can be 40 centimeters of water. And that's... So in our mode, with the way that we focus here at MCHD is we deliver a specific amount of volume over a specific amount of time. We focus on that. We, we leave kind of the sexy pressure ventilation or pressure cycle uh, vents out of the equation, which I think is reasonable. I think that that kind of can kind of get very confusing. I think it's the easiest to learn. It's the easiest to, uh, to, to maintain and reproduce from medic to medic. Uh, you've got a, a formula that you can use that's reproducible. So yeah, I'm, I think most of us, especially uh, if you're not dealing with a, a ton of ICU to ICU transfers, uh, volume ventilation is, is uh, perfectly sufficient. We, we at MCHD take ours up a notch from the old sort of extinct uh, dinosaur of, of CMV to assist control. And now again, with the terminology, a lot of this gets confusing. Some people will use CMV and assist control interchangeably for the purposes of this discussion, we consider assist control one step up in that the ventilator can sense the patient's breath. And if the patient breathes above the ventilated rate, then the ventilator will assist those breaths fully to your, uh, to your set limit. And again, our limit in our service is a volume limit. So if you set the tidal volume at 400, and a rate of 14 and the patient is apneic, they'll get 14 breaths at 400 cc's. If you set the rate at 14 at 400 cc's and they're breathing 30 times a minute, they'll get 30 breaths at 400. And how is that sensed? That's sensed, uh, depending on the ventilator, by flow or by negative pressure. So the vent senses that negative inspiratory pressure, that negative flow from the patient's inspiration and delivers a breath above and beyond uh, the set rate. And that becomes important in, in several situations. Uh, one of which I think I'd like Brandon to tell us a, a quick story uh, regarding uh, acidosis, mechanical ventilation, and times when we may want those uh, minute volumes above and beyond what we set. Sure. Yeah. So um, we've, we discussed this case earlier, guys. We had uh, a patient at, uh, at one of our ground services just a, a a few days ago um, and uh, you know pediatric patient uh, metabolic pretty severe metabolic acidosis pH was was well below seven and uh, uh, obviously we want to avoid intubating these patients if we can we want especially if they're uh, if they're doing their best to compensate uh, so uh, if, if they've got a significant respiratory compensation for a metabolic acidosis uh, the DKA patient is the one that comes to mind right these these patients are uh, breathing uh, 150, 200% of their normal minute volume. Uh, they're breathing deep and they're breathing fast. 
Uh, and so if we elect, if we electively intubate these patients and take away their ability to, to compensate, we have to be very careful to match that, uh, to, to match that previous minute volume. And if we don't, uh, you take that severely acidotic patient and you make it worse pretty quick and, you're, and you get yourself in a bad situation. So again, the, I think the optimal way would, would be to support them and, and maybe try something non-invasive, but it gets to the point that if they can't, um, if they can't support that, that previous minute ventilation we have to take over, uh, it's very important that we don't go by our, our cookbook, our basic parameters and shoot for an end title of, uh, of 35 to 45, right? Uh, because we might need an end title CO2 of 20 or 15 or, or sometimes lower than that just, in, uh, just to compensate for, for that acidosis. Right, so you're saying in the severely acidotic patient, in this specific patient it was like a 10-year-old child diabetic ketoacidosis, very, very acidotic, tachypnic. Um, you're yeah, the saying pH was like 6.6. It's amazing, amazing, yeah, amazingly low. That's right. the only reason that kid survived is age yeah. and physiology. Uh, yeah. So yeah. what you're saying is, is that if you took that child and the respiratory rate was 40, and yeah. then you would use a, a formula. At MCHD, we use a, a ideal body weight formula. If the kid was, we use uh, height and feet minus 1.5 times 100 to get our, our volume for the ventilator. So what you're saying is for that child, you would take, if the child was five feet, you would take minus 1.5, so 3.5, so 350 cc's. Um, you would estimate their minute, their, their minute need by their previous respiratory rate prior to intubation and their ideal body weight or ventilator right. rate for and, their tidal volume per cycle. Exactly, and then you use your, you know, you use your alarms uh, to, to adjust to where you need to because sometimes you can get away with a, a little bit bigger breath without, uh, and still avoid the volume trauma or the barrow trauma, right? So uh, sometimes you can, you can get in the upper parameters of, of where of where that is when you look at minute volume. You, you might be able to get uh, up to eight milliliters per kilogram instead of the six that we're starting at. Right. Uh, and, and then for the rest of it, adjust the rate accordingly. So uh, I think just staying within uh, within those with those guidelines and uh, making sure that you're not uh, getting your high pressures. You, you just wanna get, uh, you wanna get that minute volume as, as high as you can. Uh, or as close as you can to the previous. Okay. And sometimes you have to use sedation because it's not comfortable many times for the patient to be, you know, uh, to, with some of these settings that we're forced to use. And to take that back to the, the initial the initial point, if you use some of the other modes, SIMV being one that I'm dating myself here, uh, but one of the ones that, that I learned on, and again, is, is going extinct now, so, um, for all you new experts out there, you can laugh and, and, and make fun, but that's what I learned on. And not to belabor the point of, of SIMV or synchronized mandatory intermittent or synchronized intermittent mandatory ventilation, the point of that was to allow the patient to take some of their own breaths within assisted breaths. Uh, this is not the patient you want to let the patient take guppy breaths in. Uh, we know that three things are harmful in our peri-arrest uh, peri-intubation phase, hypoxia, hypotension, and acidosis. And, you know, you may say to yourself, well, if I keep their PCO2 at, or their intidal CO2 at 30, they're not acidotic, but they're, they have a relative respiratory acidosis compared to where they started before you induced them, before you took away their drive and started ventilating for them. They had a 
you know, an entitle of 10 at that point. So they've right. gone from 10 to 30. You've significantly contributed to additional acidosis in a patient that's already got a heavy metabolic acidosis load. Yep. So, the baseline is so important. Yeah. And sometimes we don't know that. So, you know, that, uh, that's where clinical judgment and, and assessment comes into to play if it's a known diabetic or if you, uh, if you, if you highly suspect uh, severe metabolic acidosis, you almost have to assume that, that their pH is, is fairly low to start with. Yeah, and we don't, moving into some of the other settings, we, one, of the, one of the important parts of this discussion from my standpoint is that the FiO2 or the fraction of inspired oxygen, the tidal volume, uh, the PEEP, the respiratory rate, those are all things that don't even have to apply to a mechanical ventilator. That can apply to a bag. Right. Those are those are four concepts that even if you don't use ventilators out there and you're listening to this part of the podcast, this is where you can still take some of these concepts and apply them. And whether or not you use, you know, a, a calculation to, to determine what your minute volume should be, whether or not you use entitled CO2, whether or not you say, OK, this patient's a DKA patient and I'm going to change. You know, you just have a set rate for presumed normal patients and presumed acidotic patients. There's multiple ways you can you can skin that cat it's more the concept of understanding if you think the patient is acidotic and you're going to take away their drive you've got to replace that minute volume or they're going to have a relative respiratory acidosis when you're finished with them we like to teach that rate is our driver of minute ventilation at mchd because from a volume trauma barrel trauma like brandon mentioned from the from that standpoint we don't want to turn our tidal volume up in most situations. Now, in a DKA kid, you probably do have a little more room because our lungs are younger and healthier. But from a conceptual standpoint, if we want to turn the minute volume up, rate times tidal volume, we want to take tidal volume out of the equation and leave that low to protect from barrel trauma and volume trauma, and then turn that rate up. And sure. that way, you know, you're you're affecting the end of the equation. Yeah, th this scenario doesn't fit very well into, into your uh, lung protective strategy ventil ventilatory uh, talk here. So it's kind of a corner case, but definitely something to, uh, to take into consideration when you've got the tools to uh, effectively take someone's respiratory drive away and manage that. That's that you know that's one just one specific situation that uh, you have to do it right the first time, uh, and you have to you know use some some forethought. And I still think you have room. There's wiggle yep. room there. You could you may you may have a higher volume. I may have a higher rate. I think we can still get to the end, the end point of maintaining the, the minute volume the patient right. had before you took away the and I think both you guys said it right. It depends on the physiology of the patient, whether it's a 65-year-old a with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or a 10-year-old with really good lungs that really has essentially a life-threatening metabolic issue. Yep. So, very, well different, very different scenarios. Absolutely. One size definitely doesn't, doesn't fit all there. Um, I think two, two areas, though, where it does fit most of the time are, are – Fraximum inspired oxygen, FiO2, and PEEP, or positive end expiratory pressure. And these are two, two situations I think we, we probably can agree across the board on, on the best route to take. Starting specifically with oxygen, if we need it and the patient is hypoxic, obviously we want to use it. Uh, but remember, we innovate a lot of patients, just like Brandon's DKA patient. Oxygenation was not the issue. Uh, the lungs were not the issue. The issue was the severe metabolic situation. And there's a new paper that comes out every three months looking at you know, liberal use of oxygen and you name the critical illness, stroke, right. MI, COPD, trauma, sepsis. 
turn their FIO2s up, turn their PAO2s up into super, super therapeutic levels, 300, 400, and their outcomes are inevitably, invariably worse. Yep, and we chronically do this to pay. It's it's such a uh, it's it's such a paradigm shift uh, from what we've known or, or thought we knew for years. So we feel free to take a listen to our hyperoxygen podcast if you want more on that. But I just I don't think there's a whole lot more to add there. It's pretty no, I couldn't agree pretty more. settled. Couldn't if, agree more. If we can turn the oxygen down, turn it down. Obvi- right. Obviously, in and your severe COPD patient with severe obstruction, shunting, oxygenation issues, we may need 100% for transport. But right, and we always start 100. I mean, we, I think in, in EMS, we need to, to focus on, right, in sick people, we don't initially withhold oxygen or, and we turn the FIO, but as soon as you get things sorted out, you need to tailor that to the, to the patient's needs. So what as do you low guys, as possible to keep the patient I'm curious what, what you guys are, uh, what route you're taking at MCHD with these hypoxic patients. Do you, uh, uh, because it's, I've seen a few different ways to do this in different places. Do you uh, crank up the FIO2 first? Do you start with a PEEP first? Do you do it in conjunction with each other? From my standpoint, the the best way I could come up with to teach this for it to make sense so that we can divide the two processes is to think of the peri-intubation, pre-intubation washout and uh, oxygenation portion as one separate procedure from the transport mechanical ventilation second portion of the procedure. So we want to wash out, we want to pre-oxygenate, we want to buy our time to visualize. So during that stage of the procedure, 100% across the board, no reason to even think about anything other than that because we we want to buy ourselves time to visualize and once the patient the tube is passed or the mask is placed or whatever mechanical ventilation mechanism that you're using is settled and we're in more of the maintenance mode uh, that's we've we've taught our folks to to use five of peep across the board and to turn it down now our vents uh, allow titration not terribly precisely so I just tell people to take it from 100 to 60 and for right now we're picking low-hanging fruit I think there's probably room to go lower than that quicker than that especially in some of our you know isolated head injury patients overdose patients patients whose lungs aren't the issue Uh, but in the end so many of these patients classically have rode to the hospital with 100% on because we want the 100% blue waveform on the monitor because it makes us feel good just like you talked about this right. is a total paradigm shift from what we're used to i think just going from 100 to 60 is is the victory that we'll take right now without hey, being without so being too aggressive that's roughly a 40 percent improvement if my math is correct I'm, that's I, right i am not in i am not a pulmonologist nor am i a mathematician but i'm going to go out on a limb and say i think brandon's right on <laughs> when you guys talk about it can you can you circle back around to peep guys i think that that when we taught this you know uh talk about the ARDSNET trial and what causes injury to lungs, right? It's really volume trauma or barrel trauma, and it's atelect trauma. Casey, can you, can you just comment on atelect trauma and the use of PEEP and why, why PEEP works to prevent that? Well, teaching PEEP, I, I separate into two benefits as well. As you can tell, I can learn two things and two things only. Uh, but PEEP, from a recruitment standpoint, props open that the alveolar alveolar opening allows oxygenation ventilation to take place in alveoli that would other be closed otherwise be closed Um, 
Now, they may open during inspiration and close during expiration. Peep, that positive end expiratory pressure, just acts as a doorstop. And not only does it keep that alveoli open to allow ventilation and oxygenation, but it keeps it from slamming open and closed with each breath. Eventually, over time, on a microscopic level, not to get uh, too physiologic, because I can't get too physiologic, but you eventually are going to have inflammatory mediator release, inflammation, yeah, it's kind of like damage to the alveolar basement membrane. And then not only do you have a closed alveoli, but you've got a closed, broken alveoli. So almost a, well, double, almost you, a double whammy. I think you make a good point, though. It's when you're focusing on obtaining recruitment and not necessarily maintaining, uh, you know, PEEP is, uh, I think for years people have been a little bit afraid to turn up the PEEP. Uh, you know, we, we always thought that PEEP, you know, would pop lungs when really looking back on it now, it's, it was these massive tidal volumes that we were using for all these years because we were ventilating yeah. these patients based on right. actual body couldn't, weight. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. Yeah. And it, you're talking about some of our East Texas patients. Oh, that's <laughs> it, man. They're, yep, yeah. it, 100%. So, so uh, I think that the making the move to ideal body weight is fantastic. Um, and then uh, you made an excellent point, uh, Dr. Patrick, as, uh, as well with the, uh, uh, the recruitment. And, you know, sometimes we have those patients that, that we're at 100% FiO2 and we're still struggling to oxygenate. Um, and sometimes uh, just a little adjustment in that peep, and you get a massive increase in your SAT, and you're, you're even able to back off of your, your FIO2 at that point because your problem wasn't necessarily those alveoli that were, that were working. You just you were only recruiting half of them. Yeah, we'll, we'll include pictures worth a thousand words. We've got a couple slides from our lecture tomorrow that, that address just this. And from a peep standpoint, really, pictures worth a million words. I think when you when you watch the, the pig lung or the sheep lung YouTube video out there with the bag valve and the tube and watch the ventilation stop, put on the peep valve, watch the ventilation, I, to me it explains it infinitely better than I ever could. And from a, from a tidal volume, high volume standpoint of we're going to do eight cc's per kilo and close our eyes and turn the knob up, we've got a one of the slides that to me drives it home perfectly and it's a basically a a, a cross-section MRI view of two patients same height one probably double the weight and if you look at their lungs just you know not measuring not measuring millimeters or just a gross look across the room you can tell that their lung volumes are exactly the same right, so why right. in the world would we calculate tidal volume randomly based on weight when right. lungs yeah doctor i always say my ideal body lives within the one i actually have but my lungs you know exactly right it's uh it, it you can use our formula based on height and and to kind of circle back around on that the the height in in feet and inches minus 1.5 times 100 and we came up with that number because it as closely as we could approximates uh, the ARDSnet data and the ARDSnet tables. You can use the, the big table or you can use that simple formula yep. for it. So we've talked about non-invasive, we talked about kind of the, the, all the, the terminology of ventilator modes, um, uh, focusing on assist control ventilation, which is one most important. Let me ask you guys, what do you guys do when it doesn't go right? What do you do when you start having problems? We've all been there, you know, the patient gets worse, the alarms are going off and and where, where do you start with that? I bet uh, Dr. Patrick breaks it into two things. <laughs> two that, things. That, that would be my guess. <laughs> I, I bet there's at least five, but uh, we'll see. <laughs> I, I don't like mnemonics 
because this one doesn't go in order. The first thing that I do, and I'll bet you that you guys agree, is I take the patient off the ventilator. I take the circuit Ditto. And, 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 and simplify it. So uh, I guess maybe I do break it into two things. I take, I, I, I take the- <laughs> no, uh, Don't egg him on. I take the complex piece of uh, electronics so that I cannot uh, manage very well, and I take and turn it into a bag and a tube. And that allows me to A, take any of my error with operating the machinery out of it. And it also gives me tactile sens- sensation as to what is their compliance. And compliance is just a fancy word for how much give do they have in their lungs. Well, I, right? think, I think that's a good place to start because you can't start to, to fix the problem if, with vent alarms going off in your ears, right? So sometimes it's, you just have <laughs> that's to. That's the other half. It turns the alarm off. <laughs> right. Sometimes you have to kind of start at square one. Um, not that the patient needs to, n- not that we should ever be replacing, uh, you know, the ventilator with, with a, a BVM, uh, but at least so we can get our bearings and we can kind of do a, a hard reset. Uh, but I like to kind of work backwards uh, and look at, my specific parameters say, what's my problem? Am I failing to ventilate? If so, then I need to look at my rate and my volume. Am I failing to oxygenate? If so, I need to look at my FOT and my PEEP. Um, and then if it's some sort of a pressure alarm, what would be my causes of that? It's patient positioning sometimes, uh, you know, burns, right? Those sometimes are really hard to ventilate. So you, you can have extrinsic factors as well as some physiologic stuff going on that are going to be causing those as well. For, our, for all you mnemonics lovers out there, we teach dopes at MCHD. So dislodgement, D. O, obstruction, so kink tube, mucus plug, uh, P, pneumothorax, which again, if you bag them easy at the, at the start of the intubation and then three, six, eight minutes later, you've got uh, all kinds of pressure alarms and hypoxia alarms and you squeeze the bag, again, tactile stimulation is worth, worth a ton here. And that's not how it felt when I bagged them to start. Think about pneumothorax, it's gonna be obviously harder to bag, you're gonna lose compliance there. Uh, e for equipment. I'm taking equipment out quickly and, right. and taking them off the vent. Uh, and then S is going to be specific to our obstructive lung disease patients and breath stacking. And basically you need to give those folks plenty of time to exhale. They've got obstructive lung disease, asthma and COPD. They can't ventilate as quickly as a normal patient. So you can do that simply by turning their rate down or from a more complex outside of the scope of this talk you can change their inspiration-expiration ratio and give them longer times to expire. Are you guys doing a different approach to these obstructive patients uh, other than the protective? Because I think you just kind of answered that. But um. We've given this lecture, or tomorrow's lecture, a couple times back at the main office, and I'm going to pop this on the boss here uh, for the first time. But we currently, our two rates are 10 for set 10 for obstructive lung disease and 16 for everyone else. And I've waded into this and I think that we're probably short there. And I think we should probably address Brandon's acidotic patients. I think we probably need a little higher rate in our regular patients. So I would propose at some point in the future, not for all you MCHD medics listening out there, this is not protocol change, but my personal thought is to change the teaching to 10, 20, 30 and to use a lung protective tidal volume choice. And if we think it's obstructive lung disease, set it at 10. If we think they're normal patient, not in, in, you know, the classic one being a DK or if we think it's a, you know, if it's a trauma or a got head bunk, bleed, Got bunked in the head. Got bunked in the head, tubes, 20. Right. And then if we're and, gonna try to match them. a hypermetabolic patient. Gonna try to, ma- try to match in an acidotic patient, 30. And I think it gives us three choices, three easy numbers to remember and would be, uh, 
low maintenance to teach him. No. You just broke I, your I, rule I, of I like two, it. though. Yeah, I know. Um, that, that extra one, I don't know what to do. I don't, I don't, I don't either. I, I, I do think that's a, a good point, and, and maybe some people who are new to ventilator management, um, it's easy to, you know, when we hear obstructive, we think, oh, obstructive, they're struggling to oxygenate, they're struggling to get air in. But, we, it, you know, we have to remember that it, they're struggling to exhale. So that, that slower rate, that, that decreased uh, inspiratory time, uh, we have to uh, – Sometimes our head takes us in the wrong place, so we have to remember that these patients are struggling to breathe out, not necessarily breathe in. I think that's a wonderful spot for us to wrap it up. Let's hit the high points real quick for all you listeners out there. I appreciate you hanging with us here. Got some got some outside noise. We are, again, live at uh, Texas EMS Conference in Fort Worth. If you're going to take anything home, use non-invasive positive, pre- positive pressure ventilation as much as you can. Two main groups, obstructive lung disease, COP and a- COPD and asthma, along with our acute pulmonary edema patients. It saves lives, saves plastic, uh, patient-centered, out- patient-centered outcomes that we care about. Uh, remember that any positive pressure that we deliver, and in a normal situation, we're breathing with negative pressure. When we're walking around talking, walking, doing our normal stuff, when we introduce positive pressure, we introduce a non-physiologic state to our patients. It's going to decrease preload. Don't forget the fluids in these patients. If you see that blood pressure bottom, it can be a really simple, quick fix for that hypotension. And again, we don't want these people to be hypotensive. We know that hypotension in a peri-intubation, uh, peri-arrest state increase their mortality, not what, not what we want to get involved with. Don't get too wrapped up in modes. Learn your services mode. Learn it well. If you end up on a HEM service or an ICU to ICU transport service, there's Vent 201 and Vent 301 for a later date. I'll have to get a. Uh, we'll have to get Brandon back I'll to talk to get about a, that. I'll have to get a pulmonologist <laughs> and some help. Yeah, I'm, I'm no help there, guys. <laughs> wean your. Uh, wean I your, can read to you. Yeah, wean your FIO2. We know that uh, too much, you know, too much oxygen can be a bad thing. Listen to our prior podcast on that one if you want more. Um, use your PEEP to prevent both alveolar damage and increase recruitment. Calculate your tidal volume based on height. Don't change it. That's our lung protective setting. Turn your rate up if you need to increase your minute ventilation. Um, and that, I think it's a good place for us to start. Stop. Andy, thanks for uh, managing our sound here. Dr. Dixon, Brandon, thanks for joining us today on the podcast. As always, if you have questions or comments, please shoot us an email. And uh, we will talk to everyone again soon. Thanks.